morning, my dearly beloved brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's good. I've learned something from somebody this weekend or this week. Yes, good morning. And it is a good morning because we're going to look at that morning without cloud, that day of the kingdom that is shortly to dawn. We're going to have to project our minds forward and to consider some of the colourful pictures presented to us by that most colourful of prophets, Isaiah. It's a been a favourite book of mine for many years and uh, I think that there is so much written in the Kingdom of God there that two of our studies are going to actually revolve around that particular prophecy. But before we look at Isaiah, I thought that we would uh, tread on holy ground, if you like, and consider some aspects of the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we shall meet the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we will all be there. And we know that we will be there because we know so much. And because we know so much, we are very accountable. And we know that it's proper and right and just that we should give an account of the things that we have done. According to that which we've done, whether they be good or bad, will the judgment be? We know all of those things. And this is a very sobering thing. And we really couldn't talk about the subject of meeting Jesus in the future unless we thought something about that. Now what I'm going to say to you is not going to have a lot of imagination in it. We do know certain facts about that encounter that we shall have with the Lord Jesus Christ, or perhaps that's not quite the right word, our appearing before him. We know that we will be gathered to him by the agency of the angels. He'll send forth his elect to the four winds and gather them to him. We know that the dead will already have been raised. And maybe that will include some of us. We may have passed into death by that time of his advent. That in itself could be an event that will occasion great fear for us because when you look at the record of scripture, never is there an occasion when a mortal stands in the presence of an angel without fear, unless of course the angel disguises the fact that he is an angel. We don't know exactly where we will be gathered. There has been speculation. Some have suggested that it will be in the remoteness of Mount Sinai. Well, we don't really know whether that's the case or not. The New Testament makes no comment about that. But we do have a number of prophecies in the Old Testament that seem to indicate to us that the saints will emerge from those fastnesses down around the region of Sinai. Be that as it may, it's not a particularly important thing, although it's interesting to contemplate. We know that the saints will be gathered prior to the Gogian invasion. That seems to be the case. That will all take place and be commencing to happen when we have been removed from our homes, our countries and gathered to the feet of our Lord. We don't know how long the judgment will take place or exactly what form it will take. When we sometimes think about it, we find it hard to imagine so many hundreds of thousands of people being gathered to the Lord and each having an individual interview, perhaps that's a better word, with the Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't think it will be a long period of time that will be involved. It has been suggested that it will take 10 years. I can't see that myself. I think the judgment, and we'll have that individual interview, there's no doubt about that. But I think we'll soon know what the judgment will be. It'll be pretty evident just what our Lord thinks of us. You know, it's interesting to take the mind back to the resurrection morn of the Lord Jesus Christ when Mary was looking for the body of her Lord. And she became conscious of this figure behind her and she said, thinking it was the gardener, if you've borne him hence, tell me where he is that I may take him. And the Lord said to her, Mary. And the very tone of his voice would have demonstrated clearly to her that she was acceptable to him. And she grasped his feet and said, Rabboni. And he said, touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my father. And I think we'll soon know our destiny, our eternal destiny. Now there are certain things that we perhaps can consider that will be helpful to us in this matter. 
we always think about them because there's such a focus upon the judgment in the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's quite amazing. Those last parables in Matthew 25, they all have the scene of the judgment seat implicit in them. Now, there are lessons that we can, be, we can learn. We won't get turned to Matthew 7. But that comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when the king, the lawgiver, has given the law of the kingdom. And he makes a startling revelation when he says, not everyone that saith unto me, it's the first time that he identifies himself as not only the lawgiver, but also the one who shall judge men on the basis of that law which has been given. Not everyone that saith unto me will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will, recounts, recalls the words our brother Bob this morning, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, as he was devoted to the will of his heavenly Father. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, we know that those words were found, not my will, but thine be done. And we pray, don't we, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. But the real challenge is the personal one here today and now, whether or not we actually do the will of our Father which is in heaven in our own lives. But when the Lord Jesus Christ spoke those words, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom, he says that many shall come to him and shall say, we have prophesied in thy name, we've done miracles in thy name, and in thy name done many wonderful works. But he will say to them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And they don't know him because, or he doesn't know them because they never really understood him. There were the big works that they had done. They were in evidence, yes, but what was the motivation? And, of course, he is aware of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Uh, those are the important things. They were very conscious of what they had done. But when you go to Matthew 25, which we won't do, we find that there are those who are acceptable who are unaware, unconscious of the fact that they had served their Lord. When saw we thee and hungered? When did we see thee thirsty and in need of the drink? Inasmuch as you've done it unto one of these, the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. And they did that service unconscious and aware of the fact that, well, as Jesus said on another occasion, when you have done all these things, say, we are unprofitable servants. We've only done that which we should have done. And that's an important thing for us to realise, that we can never really give to God anything that, is, that he needs in the sense of his deficiency. It's our attitude that is the important thing in our service. So we see then that the righteous are unaware of their righteous acts. They're perhaps more aware of their insufficiencies. You know, we can be aware of insufficiencies, can't we? We can be aware of what we don't do. There are many things that we don't do that we perhaps could have done, should have done, we haven't done. And I feel like that very often, and I'm sure you do as well, that when we reflect upon what we have done, and there are many things that we hear about that we could become involved in, but we pass them by because we're too busy, we're doing this or we're doing that, or there's some project that we are preoccupied with. We need to think very seriously about that. We need to be aware of our deficiencies and the wonder of God's grace which compensates our deficiencies. Now, Jesus spoke that parable of the Pharisee and the publican, it's a very telling parable because the two attitudes of the Pharisee and the publican are instructive. They're in stark contrast. I know that there's a typo in that. Uh, there, maybe. Oh, there it is, stark contrast. <laughs> it should be stark contrast. So when you get the copy of the um, slides, you might need to correct that. There's a stark contrast that we need to be conscious of because... The publican, he said, with his head bowed down, he couldn't so much as look up to heaven, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. It was a simple prayer, but he was very aware of his weakness and his need. Be merciful. He realised how deficient his service was and he implored that God might show his mercy upon him. Whereas the proud publican listed off all his accomplishments and thanked God that he was not like this man. And at the end of that, the Lord said, I tell you, he says, this man went down justified, that is the publican who confessed his sin and sought the mercy of God. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
There's a great instruction in that. We can't have a high opinion of what we have done. We're absolutely nothing. And if we think we're somebody, we've made a huge mistake. Every man at his very best is altogether vanity, it says in the Psalms. We are nothing. And if we are anything, we are only what we are because the truth has made us that. And we need to be very conscious of that. Now, in this matter of the judgment seat, there's a passage that I've quoted many times of recent days. And because I think it's so significant, and we do often think about the judgment, and we wonder what the decision will be in the case of our, in a, of our own case and situation. How will we fare? What will the Lord say to us? Well, it's quite a concerning thing because that will be the decision that will determine eternity as far as we are concerned. We know when the Apostle Paul was in prison, he was visited by Onesiphorus, who sought him out diligently, the record tells us. He found him. He wanted to be with the Apostle Paul. And that involved risk because he was a prisoner. He sought me out diligently and was not ashamed of my chain, says the Apostle. And you know, twice, it's in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16, as we have it there. He says, the Lord grant him mercy in that day. And that's a significance. Twice he says that. His household mercy in that day. And that's really all that we need to focus upon. Not what we've done, what we haven't done, but the fact that God is gracious and merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Remember that, and that that mercy finds its expression in the Saviour. You know, in that day, we'll go there as we are. We'll be raised like we were if we have passed into death. And we sometimes think about our characters, that there are these ingrained traits, things that we've striven to overcome, which we've found difficult to get over and get past. We may have members of our family whom we've told many times certain things, but they never seem to learn the lesson. A little bit like Samson. He continued to fall in the same direction time after time. But you see, we can't actually pass into the kingdom with our characters lacking, can we? There has to be a perfection, a completion of our characters. It's an interesting contemplation how that will be brought about. But the law will certainly make us conscious and aware of those ingrained deficiencies that we've been unable to eradicate. And we will see them in all their weakness, in all their evil and we will renounce them and then we'll be made we'll be ready for that change into immortality it's interesting to contemplate but if there are deficiencies that we are aware of now if there are sins that we've committed and sometimes we don't like to own the things that we've done we'll blame others oh i couldn't help it because so and so said this and i reacted in this particular way and we won't confess our sins there's a positive resistance isn't there to confessing our sins we certainly don't like to do that to each other but you know, the, James says, the brother of our Lord, that we should confess our sins one to another. Very humbling. And it indicates great sincerity. But John says in his first epistle in chapter 1, and they're wonderful words, if we confess our sins, he is just and faithful to forgive our sins. They're amazing words. So we have to be honest with ourselves and wear our sins and own them. And acknowledge them and confess them. And if we do, they will not be brought up at the judgment seat. And that's the reality. They will not be there. He is just. He said he will forgive. He's forgiving transgression, iniquity and sins. And he will do that. He's just and faithful to forgive our sins. And we would have him then confess our names before the angels. And if we do confess him today then that will be the case and we'll be ushered into eternal life. You can see those two quotations there, rejected, weeping Anne and shame Anne. You know that six times in Matthew's Gospel it says, in Matthew's Gospel it says, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There'll be remorse, opportunity has passed and there is rejection, it's a finality. They're dreadful words and they express the feeling of those who will be rejected. May it indeed be that none of us might fall into that case. And then we have the statement, there shall be shame and everlasting contempt, which comes from Daniel chapter 12. And that's the reaction of those who see, those who are rejected, who have failed in their service to their Lord. There will be shame and everlasting contempt as they are rejected and they go their way. 
and then, of course, those who are found acceptable, who are on the right hand of the Lord, receive those blessed words, wonderful words. And Jesus says that the words will be, Come ye blessed of my Father. Blessed of my Father because all sin is against him. And you found acceptance for him. And I've been judging men on his behalf. Come ye blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Before we go into Isaiah, I want firstly to go to Song of Solomon. I couldn't resist doing this. I was pleased to hear Brother Jeff's words on the Song of Solomon that so wonderfully show the mutual love between bridegroom and bride. But there are two passages here that I just want to look at. The first of them in chapter 2 in verses 8 to 13. Maybe we will start from verse 10. My beloved spake and said unto me, the bridegroom is speaking, and this is what her beloved says unto her. And of course we've got to put ourselves in the, in the picture because we are part of the bride, the multitudinous bride. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. And so that multitudinous body of people that Christ loved and died for, remember he loves us more than anybody else ever could because he loved us unto death and there's no greater love as he reminds us. And why does he say this to her? Because it's springtime. It's the time of new life. The cold, the death of winter is past. The rain is over and gone. And the flowers appear on the earth. And the time of the singing of birds is come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. Beautiful time spring, isn't it? When the flowers appear and the bulbs send forth their flowers and there is rejoicing and freshness and there is new life. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs and the vines with tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Oh, to be amongst that community that will hear those words. And we shouldn't think that we shall not be because of the mercy of God. The Lord grant him mercy in that day. The Lord grant us mercy in that day. And in verse 8 we have an interesting invitation again. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. So we can see that the bride is invited to survey her inheritance from this prominence on the south of the Lebanon the Lebanese range, the southern tip from Mount Hermon, from which you can command a tremendous view. As you look towards the west, you can see Tyre, and you can see the plain, and you can see the sea. And as your eye moves around, you can see the Carmel Range and the hills of Galilee. And as you turn further, you can see the plain of Damascus and the rivers that come down from the eastern side of the anti-Lebanese range are the basis and the source of life for Damascus. This is the vision that is seen. And we're reminded of the words that God spake to Abraham when he was in the very centre of the land. And when he was to give that land both to Abraham and his seed. To thee will I give this land and to thy seed forever. Lift up thine eyes and behold the land from the north, south, east and west. For to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. Shall we be there? Shall we see this land? And as our hymn puts it, we actually make the answer now. Now let's come to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. Well, Isaiah is a remarkable prophecy. Falls roughly into two parts. The first, or three parts. The first 35 chapters. Then we have the historical chapters to chapter 39. And then the rest of the book, of course, is a portrait of the kingdom and the work of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, the servant prophecy. Isaiah prophesied for something like 60 years, from the reign of Isaiah right through to the reign of Manasseh and probably died at the hands of Manasseh. We read in Hebrews 11 that some were sawn asunder and Isaiah fled from the persecution of Manasseh, hid in the trunk of a tree, so we are told, and Manasseh gave charge that that tree should be sawn asunder. So Hebrews says that Faith sufferers. Some of them were sawn asunder, and this great man was one of them. 
Now, the meaning of his name is very interesting. Isaiah means the salvation of Yahweh. And it's interesting because it's Jesus' name in reverse. Isaiah, but Jesus' name is Yahshua. You see, it's turned around. And the prophecy deals with the salvation of God. Both of his advents. We have the Emmanuel prophecy that deals with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and his origins. And we have the servant prophecy that deals with his, his sacrifice in greater detail than in any other part of the scripture. And then we have those visions of the kingdom at the end of the prophecy. Quite an amazing book. It'd be nice to speak to Isaiah in the day to come, won't it? And to ask him of the circumstances of his life, of the years that went over him, those 60 years of service and dedication. But let us now come to Isaiah chapter 2, take up these pictures that we've spoken about. Amazing chapter, one that we use continually to show to friends what the kingdom will be like. And there's no more vivid picture than the one that we have here. It shall come to pass in verse 2 in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. The great earthquake shall elevate it into a prominence which will give it, make it visible to those who are coming from afar. The mountain of the Lord's house, the house of the Lord, shall be there. It shall be established in the top of the mountains. We know that Jerusalem currently is surrounded by mountains about 700 metres high, quite high. It can be a cold place and even a place of snow in winter, as we know. But it shall be greatly elevated by, by the earthquake in this day. It shall be exalted above the hills. And the consequence is something that is actually unnatural. We read that nations will flow unto an elevated place. We know that waters usually do the reverse. But in this day, things will be different, and the nations will flow to Jerusalem. It'll be the, the hub of the earth. It won't be Rome or New York or any of those other places. Jerusalem will be the place where the eyes of the world shall turn. And they won't do so under duress or stress or compulsion. They'll go to Jerusalem because they want to do that, and it's almost impossible to imagine that situation developing out of the ungodliness that we see on every side and the disinterest and the spurning of the Bible and of God's people and the disinterest and the preoccupation with materialism. All of that is going to go. It'll be a new day, my dear brethren and sisters, a wonderful day. And you and I will be there. And we'll help to administer that day because it says here that they'll say, come ye, they'll encourage their neighbours. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways. They'll want to learn the Bible. They'll want to learn the ways of the king enthroned in Zion. And they'll say, we will walk in his paths. They'll want to do that. And of course, there are certain things that will happen that will create this disposition, condition them so to desire. And verse 4 tells us, he'll judge among the nations and rebuke many people. So his mighty arm, the Lord will make bare his holy arm in the face of all nations, and they'll feel the power of the Almighty, and their whole attitude will be changed, and their relationship to their Creator. And then we read that they shall beat their swords into plowshares. When we think of the enormous arms industry today, that's a huge statement. Actually, it wasn't long ago that Brother John Sivy was doing this talk, and uh, he was dealing with that verse, and he had this picture of all these tanks lined up, one after the other with their turrets and their guns, and they were going into this great factory here and they were coming out as tractors on the other side. Uh, it's quite a good way to illustrate the idea of guns not butter, isn't it? But will there be tractors in the age to come? Well, to say that there is, of course, is to suppose a whole lot of other things will be in existence which may not be. It's an interesting contemplation, isn't it? All of these things, will they be there or won't they be there? Tractors would certainly be useful, but maybe the, the ox or the carabao will still be in use in those days as life becomes more rural and people become more dependent upon God. So there will be no need for peace treaties in this day because their swords will be beaten into plowshares. And we read that nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so the academies for learning the, the art of war will be no more. They will cease to exist and men will not focus upon how to overcome their enemies because there will be no enemies. There will be one government, all powerful, governed by one who is all wise and immortal, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we read at the end of this chapter about this earthquake. There was an earthquake in the days of Isaiah. We know that it took place when he presumed to go into the temple. 
And we have here a record of what the great earthquake will do, perhaps based upon that one that took place in Jerusalem at that time. Verse 10, enter into the rock, hide thee in the dust for the fear of Yahweh and for the glory of his majesty. Now that's a telling statement. <coughs> Earthquakes change the status quo. Things are not the same afterwards. For the fear of Yahweh and for the glory of his majesty. The scripture speaks in many places of the great earthquake. Speaks of every wall falling. There will be a great earthquake and men will fear as they've never feared before. And they'll be brought to sobriety as they've never been before. The lofty looks of men shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men that we see so apparent as the fear of God evaporates from the hearts and thoughts of men as today. The haughtiness of weak men, Enos, shall be bowed down and Yahweh alone shall be exalted in that day. A total inversion of values. And so we have that repeated. Verse 19, they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth. And we have the refrain repeated. And again in verse 21, for the fear of Yahweh and for the glory of his majesty, when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. And so it's the great earthquake bringing a measure of sobriety to men. Chapter 4 is interesting because we are introduced for the first time in scripture to the branch. Verse 2, in that day shall the branch of Yahweh be beautiful and glorious. And then we read of some interesting events that will take place relative to Zion. We read that there shall be a canopy there that will protect against the heat of the sun and against the, the tempest. It will be upon every dwelling place, upon Mount Zion. And so we have uh, this picture of the temple that has that canopy above it. And it's this passage of scripture upon which that is based. Verse 5, Yahweh will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies, reminiscent these words are of the Exodus, cloud and smoke by day to provide protection from the sun, shining and a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a canopy, Rotherham says, or a defence. There will be protection uh, for the activities, the supremely important activities involved in that place. There shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the day from the heat, for a place of refuge, covered from the storm, from the rain. If we turn over the page to chapter 6, we've already had reference made to this chapter. Brother Bob spoke about those who saw Jesus in the Old Testament. And Isaiah was one of them. He saw him and spake of him. And of course the words of verses 9 and 10 had just been quoted in John chapter 12. But it says here, in the year that King Isaiah died. Now he was the king that presumed to go into the most holy place and to offer incense. He wasn't content with being king. He wanted both roles to be in his hands. He wanted to combine the roles of a king and high priest. And he was confronted by the priests when he sought to do that. And his iniquity was amplified by the fact that leprosy arose in his forehead and he hastened to leave and was hurried out by the other priests and he dwelled in a place of separation for the rest of his life. This prophecy was spoken at the very time when he died and it's highly significant because the leper was to proclaim his uncleanness. Verse 1, in the year that King Isaiah died, a significant punctuation. I saw also the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So he's on a throne, and his train, his priestly garments, filled the temple. And then we have the proclamation, holy, 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 in stark contrast to the words of the, the leper, unclean, 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 that he was to cry out to warn those that may be in his path. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so we can see we have this picture then of this king priest of the age to come, even our beloved Lord who will administer all affairs on behalf of his father. Chapter 9. We'll have to keep moving. We read of the victory over the enemy. And then we read of the key to that victory why it will happen. It's a beautiful verse. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You know, those are the very basis, you might note, 
of John chapter 3 and verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's what it says. Unto us a son is given. Is given. It's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? It wasn't born from the families of men. God interposed in, in human activity and provided the son, his Holy Spirit coming upon the Virgin Mary and causing that child to be born. And so that's why it's couched in the way it is. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And then we have these glorious names. Wonderful, he'll be called. Counselor. The mighty warrior. The everlasting father. The prince of peace. And then we have a concise description of the character of his reign. Of the beautiful words, my dear brothers and sisters. They're just wonderful words of the increase. It'll spread that kingdom. It'll embrace all nations ultimately. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, the recurring phrases that characterise that kingdom. And then the inevitability of these things is underlined. The zeal of Yahweh of armies will perform it. There can be no doubt that that will take place. Chapter 11. Wonderful words. There shall come forth, verse 1, a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So we have second reference in Scripture to the branch. It's going to be a rod of the stem of Jesse, and a branch will grow out of his roots. And we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is that branch. He's the sprout that comes up. He's the one that sustains Jesse and David, as it were. He's the root and the offspring of David, we read in Revelation. He identifies himself in that way. And then the distinction of this one, the reason for that is given to us. Because the spirit of Yahweh shall rest, as a bird would rest upon a bough. And we know that that's the exact way in which the Holy Spirit came as a dove and rested upon him. Picking up this picture that we have here. And it rested upon him, it was visible, it was seen. And the voice was heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that wisdom that that spirit gave to him made him of great wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge in the fear of the Lord. Because there is no knowledge if there's not the fear of the Lord in the mix. And we look at men today and they're qualified and they've got all these degrees, but what do they really know? When I was a student, I used to think the professor of dentistry knew a lot and sort of stood in awe of him. But time, of course, has made me realise that they, don't, they know a lot about something but they don't know anything about what really counts. They're really quite ignorant of the important things in life. And that's our privilege. However humble we might be, we are elevated and exalted. We're in heavenly places in our Lord Jesus Christ, even as he was instructed by God. And we read that the Spirit will make him a quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh, so that he won't be governed by the sight of the eye or the hearing of the ear, which are the, the sole criteria on which judgments are made today. You can only go on evidence of eye and ear. There's nothing more. But we know that our Lord has knowledge of the human heart. He knows what is in man. He knows what we're thinking. He, God searches the hearts of men. He's interested in the thought patterns of our minds. He knows the way we're thinking. We can hide nothing from him. We're naked and open before the, the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so it will be in this day. There will be no clever lawyers. There will be no alibis that will stand up. They'll all be exposed for what they are. There will be righteous judgment swiftly executed and the fear of the Lord will be in the hearts of men with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth what of the wicked these words are picked up in 2 Thessalonians 2 and in Revelation of the false prophet he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth with the power of his diction his judgments with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked they're incisive words they're powerful words my dear brethren and sisters this is a drama. This is impressive. And then we read that everything will be executed in righteousness. And it's beautifully put. It's the thing that holds all the garments of his person in place. It's so much part of him. Righteousness shall be the girdle of his waist. Faithfulness the girdle of his reins. There'll be integrity here. The upholding of divine honour. There'll be no compromise. And then we have this astounding picture of the peace of that day. 
And it goes on. There are so many pictures that are here given. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The most unlikely companions. Wolves and lambs. Wolves in sheep's clothing, the Lord speaks about. Wolves in, as lambs, lying down with the lambs, dwelling with them. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little child, their poignant pictures, shall lead them. The cow and the bear, traditional enemies, will be at peace. Is it literal? Do you think it's literal? Or do you think it's speaking of nations at peace that were once sparring partners? It's interesting to contemplate, isn't it? The sucking child shall play at the hole of the ass. The little child shall come to the hole of the ass. We recoil, we wince at the thought. And then it says that the hand of the child, the weaned child, will put its hand on the adder's den. It's a horrific thought. But that's stated there to underline in graphic terms the peace of that day. And then we have the summary, they shall not hurt nor destroy in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. What a beautiful verse that is. And then the explanation for that in verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the peoples. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Words fail me to describe that, my dear brothers and sisters. But you know, there's a link between that verse and, and John chapter 12. We would see Jesus. Those Gentiles, those Greeks, they came to Philip and they said, Sir, they showed respect, you see, and that's why they were heard. And Gentiles must show respect. We would see Jesus. And the words of the law that followed are quite amazing. Except a grain of wheat fall into the ground, it abideth alone. But if it die, it will bring forth and bear much fruit. Said, what does he mean by saying that? These Gentiles said they would see Jesus. He thinks of his death because he knew that it was only by his death that the way, the door of faith, would be open to the Gentiles. And later in that conversation which he has with them, in which he contemplated his death because John tells us now my, that he said, now am I troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this very hour came I into the world. And then he said, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And that's what we read here. That word nest means an enzyme, something that is lifted up. And so there is a conjunction between our subject and this prophecy in John chapter 12. He will be an enzyme to the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek. And his manuka, his marital rest, will be glorious. My dear brethren and sisters, it's exciting for our hearts and our minds to contemplate that rest, that freedom from concern and fear and worry that will obtain in that wonderful day. Isaiah chapter 24. This is an amazing prophecy. It's an incredible picture. We have the intervention of God in human affairs. We have a picture of judgment and salvation in these four chapters that follow here. Let's do a praising. Behold, Yahweh maketh the earth empty. He maketh it waste. He turneth it upside down. Twists its surface, it says in the RSV. Scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. There's a picture there, my dear brothers and sisters. Did you ever used to play checkers? You, know, you used to have the checkers all in the little holes, didn't you? And someone would come along and knock the board and they'd all go hither and thither and you think, it, I can't ever put them back where they were. That's the picture you've got here. The, earth is going to the Lord is going to twist the surface of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are going to be scattered abroad. That's the picture. He's going to turn it upside down and scatter abroad the inhabitants thereof. Such will be the earthquake. You see, this really follows on from Isaiah 2, doesn't it? Where we have the great earthquake. And we find that all men are reduced to a common level because that's what chaos does, does to society. We can see it in the world today. All the millionaires have lost their billions and they're not a lot different to a lot of people who are much poorer than them. They're all reduced to a, a common lot. And it says here, as with the people, so with the priest. And down a bit further, as with the seller, so with the buyer. As with the lender, the bankers, so with the borrowers. As with the taker of usury, the creditors. So with the giver of usury unto him, the land shall be utterly emptied, 
utterly spoiled, for Yahweh hath spoken the word. That's what we will see. That will be the case in the day of our Lord when the earthquake strikes and men are reduced to commonality, to a common level. And then we have the reason given. The earth mourneth, fadeth away. World, the inhabitable world, languisheth, fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. So the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. And here's the reason, because the world has become like the Canaanites. The iniquity of the Canaanites was not quite yet full in the days of Abraham. When Israel entered the land, they destroyed them. And the same terminology is used of this world. The earth is defiled or lies polluted under the inhabitants thereof. Look at all the magazines, all the pictures, all the films, everything around us. It's just filth there, my dear brothers and sisters. The minds of men are just obsessed with the sensuous, the temporal, the transient. They have no fear of God whatsoever. And that's why this destruction is coming, because there is no glory to God. The earth is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they've transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore the curse is devoured, has devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. Psalm 110 says... He'll fill the earth with dead bodies. Jeremiah 25, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth to the other. It's an amazing spectacle. And we'll have to deal with that, my dear brothers and sisters, because we will be there. We'll be the administrators in that day. We'll see the justice of that. We'll appreciate, and we do appreciate the justice of that because our profession as the servants of Christ qualifies us for that. Verse 13, when thus it shall be in the midst of the land... We have this picture in the preceding verses there of revelry. Well, that revelry will come to an end. And if ever we lived in an age of revelry, of gourmet restaurants, of, of whining and dining, it's today. I was just thinking the other day when I was in America quite a few years ago, they used to have this sign-up, $100 dine. It was probably a $1,000 dine today. But, uh, you know, it, 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 to me that was something outrageous. $100 for a meal? No, thanks. I wouldn't be in that. But you see, that's what the world is like, and there's restaurants proliferating everywhere, offering all the gourmet foods and all the foods of different countries, Vietnamese, Italian, whatever, it's there. And uh, we all like to go out there, don't we, sometimes? But we've got to be careful. We've got to keep our hearts and minds for Christ. But then we read here, in verse 13, something that arrests our attention. And this is rather beautiful, because it's about you and me today. When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the peoples, plural, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. There'll be few people. That's what it's telling us. Two figures for that. A very few people. What will they be doing? Well, in the face of this chaos, we find that they're shouting for joy. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty, the sovereignty of Yahweh. They shall cry aloud from the sea, from the west. And it says, Wherefore glorify ye Yahweh in the fires, or in the east, even the name of Yahweh, God of Israel, in the isles of the sea. And then the prophet comments, From the uttermost parts of the earth, we, he we hear songs, even glory to the righteous one. Significant words. Glory to the righteous one in the face of the judgments of God. True and righteous are thy judgments they shall proclaim because they'll see the justice in the great destruction that will eclipse life as we know it today. You know, it reminds us of the words of our Lord when he says, when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. Words in the Olivet Prophecy. And so much of that prophecy has its foundation here. There are many allusions and references to it. But look at the next statement. I said, now this is Isaiah speaking. He's seen this picture and he's vividly affected by it personally in the vision that is projected before his eyes. But I said, my leanness or I pine away. I pine away. Woe is me, he says. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Yea, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Brought all this chaos and this destruction upon mankind. And then we have this vivid picture. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon the O inhabitant of the earth. And those are the words of Jesus in the Olivet Prophecy. For as a snare shall it come upon all those that dwell upon the face of the whole earth. You know those words taken directly from here. And he speaks of no way out. And that's the picture that we have here. Because look at verse 18. It shall come to pass 
that he who flees from the noise of fear, that we men fleeing in various directions with the earthquake trembling around them and they're not knowing where to go and they're just running to escape. Well, it says of them, they'll fall into the pit. They'll fall into, they won't be able to escape. But those that manage to get out of the pit, we read about them. He that cometh up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. So he makes off again, having come out of the mouth of the pit, only to be taken in a snare and he can't move. And then the record says he looks up to heaven for, for help. And it says the windows of heaven are open as in the days of Noah and destruction comes upon him. And he looks down to the earth and the earth is going like that. There is no way out. As a matter of fact, that word no way out in Luke chapter 22 is a cognate of the word found in verse 19, which is translated in the Septuagint, from the Septuagint ver version, moved exceedingly. There'll be no way out. It'll be too late for the inhabitants of the earth. And then we read in the verses that follow that the rulers of the earth that have brought this ruin upon men shall be gathered together in verse 22 as prisoners are gathered in the pit. And then we read of the new administration. The moon, the religious powers and of the world today, the eminent people, the Pope, and all of those who consider themselves the spiritual leaders of men, they shall be confounded. And the political leaders, there's not a lot of them that have any respect. Barack Obama perhaps for a little while, but you'll soon blot his copybook. The sun shall be ashamed when this new administration is ushered in, when the Lord of hosts, notice the militant title of God, shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And here we are, brethren and sisters, and before his ancients gloriously. And in the Septuagint, it is, it is elders. It's the Greek word presbyteroi. And actually, the vision in Revelation chapter 4 is of the throne of God with the 24 elders, the same word, around it. And it's this very picture that we have here of the Lord of hosts reigning and the, the 24 elders doing his bidding and his will and reigning with him. Now chapter 25, amazing chapter. We read this today. Yahweh, thou art my God. Here's a reverie. Here's words spoken in retrospect, a looking back, a consideration, a reflection upon what is now in evidence and what has been said before that. Those things in which the saints took refuge, mental refuge, found hope in, like you and I this day, as in this prophecy. So in that day, men will look back and they'll think, well, how has all this come up? What did we think? Yes, the word of God is true. What God has said he would do, he has done. And that's what this is telling us. O Yahweh, thou art our God. I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name. Why? Because for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. And that's, with, that's the counsel of old, what you're holding in your lap. It's the, the word of God. This is his counsel that was given of old, 2,000 years old at the earliest, we know. Well, we found that what God has said has come to pass and there's rejoicing and reflection and there's the recognition of the counsel of God, the word of God being essentially true. Verse 2, for thou hast made of a city and heap of a defence city a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built. So we have the destruction of Great Babylon, the city of the Gentiles. But we have the elevation of Mount Zion. And so we read in verse, moving forward to verse 6, and in this mountain, direct connection with verse 23 of the previous chapter, as in verse 7, as in verse 10, there's reference to this mountain as the very focus of the work of God. And we read here that Yahweh of hosts maketh unto all people a feast of fat things. Feast of fat things for all people. Maybe that's a reference to the saints, to all nations. Men of all nations, of course, are being drawn unto God. But it's a feast of fat things indeed. Look at the language. Feast of wines on the lees that are of fat things full of marriage. There's emphasis, isn't there? Of wines on the lees, well refined. It'll be a day of celebration and rejoicing, the day of the end of man's rule and of the inauguration of the divine. And then in verse 7, we read about some of the results of his reign, what things he, what will be the, the things that he'll undertake to do in the immediate wake of his kingdom. He will destroy in this mountain the face of covering cast over all people. All the isms that have blocked the free course of the truth into the hearts of men will be removed. Buddhism, Confucianism, 
evolution. All those things will be a thing of the past. You'll break, take the veil that is spread over all nations. Very hard to penetrate the hearts of men that have been brought up in false religion, to disabuse them of those ideas that have been cherished and believed for so many years. In this day, that'll be done. And then it says, you'll swallow up death in victory. Our breakfast was on our plates this morning. When we finished, it wasn't there. There was no evidence of it whatsoever. Neither will there be, so far as death is concerned. O death, where is thy power? O grave, where is thy sting? The Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. What a wonderful verse that is. The rebuke of his people, the shame of being professing the name of Christ. For those who have reveled in anti-Semitism, they will be no more. The reproach of his people. I mean, people have scorned us for being Christadelphians. Even in this tolerant age, men have died for the name of Christ, like that Albert Menz, who died before Hitler's, Hitler's prosecutors and firing squad. And the certainty for Yahweh of hosts hath spoken it. Now we'll have to make this our final verse. It says here, again, it's a reverie. That is, it's retrospective. It's a looking back. Here we have the words of a saint in the kingdom and considering all that God has done. What does he say? He says, in that day, notice that, in that day, this is what will be said. Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. And he will save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And my dear brethren and sisters, may it indeed be that every one of us, from the vantage point of the kingdom, may be able to look back and reflect and contemplate the, the marvels of eternal life and salvation, the abolition of death and all the evils that afflict mankind today. And it'll be our lot in the mercy of God to be part and parcel of that great body of people who will be given charge in that day of the affairs of the world in conjunction with their Lord, having met him and found his approval uh, to live and reign with him in glory uh, for the 1,000 years. Or as it says here, he will reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before his elders or ancients in glory. Mm -hmm.